0: A storied franchise. And the New York Islanders have won their fourth
1: straight Stanley
0: Cup. All-time NHL greats. And he pops on over
1: the line. Goes to the left side, shoots and scores!
0: is Talkin' Isles with Greg Picker and Corey Wright. We welcome you into another edition of Talkin' Isles, the New York Islanders official interview-based podcast. I'm Greg Picker, radio color commentator for the team, and joined alongside by senior writer for NewYorkIslanders.com, Corey
2: Wright. And, Corey, this week we stick to the broadcasting theme with our guest. That's right. We have Brendan Burke, the TV play-by-play voice for the Islanders. You can hear him on MSG networks doing Islander games. You can also hear him nationally on TNT doing games as well. And it was really a pleasure to talk to him. We've gotten to know Brendan really well over his six seasons with the team. He's had some very memorable calls, but it was kind of fun to go back through his history because, you know, he spent a lot of time in the minor leagues and we got into some of the different hats he had to wear, a bit of his journey to get up here, some of his process on the broadcast. So... Uh, If you like Brendan, if you like broadcast, if you like Islander games, I think there's a lot here for uh, Islander fans. And it's time
0: to take it away with Brendan Burke.
1: Here's Paul Mary and Pajot into the Penguin zone. Three and a half to go here in OT. Paul Mary with a shot. He scores!
0: We now welcome in the television play-by-play voice of the New York Islanders, Brendan Burke, who has been with the team and MSG Network since 2016. Brendan, we thank you so much for joining us. And like with most of our guests, we like to go a little bit into the past to start. And so we know you got your real broadcasting start at Ithaca College. Can you just take us into why you ended up going there for your studies?
1: Yeah. No, it's an interesting uh, interesting story, actually. Uh, I, I decided I want to be a broadcaster at nine years old, which is, I guess, a little bit early. And immediately my dad uh, said, well, you're going to want to go to Syracuse and get a degree in journalism and broadcast and do all that kind of stuff. And so that was always my goal was to go to Syracuse like every other Bob Costas wannabe. And I went and visited Syracuse and I liked the program. And I really started to look into it and went to the college and did the same thing and realized that if you went to Syracuse, you were going to be one of a million guys trying to do it. And they were like, yeah, you might be able to get on your air your junior year and do a couple of games here and there. Ithaca, they were like, yeah, you can do stuff first week freshman year. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'd rather go and feel my way through it than wait my turn and hope it works. And so I actually made an about face it and went to the college and a big part of that actually was in the process of looking for schools, I tried to connect with people that had gone there. And having some contacts my, with my dad being a sports writer, he put me in touch with Bruce Beck. Bruce Beck went to Ithaca College. Bruce said, hey, I can tell you all about Ithaca from when I went there, but that was a long time ago. Let me give you the phone number of somebody that I know that I've worked with that is currently a student at Ithaca College. He'll love to talk to you. So I spent about an hour on the phone with this guy, told me all about it, sounded like a great idea. That guy actually is Ed Cohen, who is the radio voice of the New York Knicks. So um, he and I have, have been close since then. And it's amazing that we both wound up where we are in both part of MSG Networks. But uh, um, he was a big part of the reason why I went there because he kind of sold me on the program. And, and that's why I went there. Well, Brendan, you talk about Having that kind of dream since you were nine years old, I feel like with people with uh,
2: especially broadcasters with distinct voices, I think, you know, you, you, Kinger, Greg, Kenny, Albert, Sam Rosen, I think it might be hard for people to picture a nine year old you without that voice. So <laughs> I'm always I always laugh at that when just when that voice actually develops for you guys. But at the same time, I'm curious, you know, growing up, who were some of your broadcast idols? Like what made you want to do this at such a young age?
1: Yeah. So as I kind of alluded to, my, my dad's a sports writer and was the Yankees beat writer for a, a good chunk of my early childhood. And so I had a lot of experiences that normal kids don't get to do that I didn't realize were special at the time, but certainly do now. And one of those was being able to go on road trips with my dad and, and go into press boxes and clubhouses and things like that with the Yankees. And on um, one of his trips, you know, I would go with him sometimes and it was just him and my mom wasn't there. And so it was just kind of, go to work with dad. And he found a great seat for me to watch the game. And that seat was in the radio booth between John Sterling and Michael Kay. And so as a nine-year-old kid, I sat there with an incredible spot in Fenway Park and watched a Yankees-Red Sox game from the broadcast booth. He asked me if the game, if I enjoyed that. And I said, you know, absolutely. And then at some point I realized that they got paid to do that. And that was not just something fun they got to do, that that was actually their job. Like there were doctors and firefighters and you could be a broadcaster, sign me up. So, you know, really ever since that moment, it was, that's what I always wanted to do. And everybody was like, oh, you're just a kid. You'll change your mind. Wait till you get to college, wait till you do this. And it only actually reinforced that's what I wanted to do. And so I've been chasing that dream, you know, really since my ninth birthday. Well, Brendan, it's
2: funny you say that because my dad always used to say that the best job in hockey was being a backup goalie because you get paid to watch the game. And I think part of the reason I became a writer is because I was not good enough to be a backup goalie.
1: That's, that's, a, that's a good point. And you get the best seat in the house in the press box too. So if you get paid to go to a sporting event or you get really, if you get paid to do anything that people are paying to attend, I think you're doing okay.
0: Well, the first time you really got paid outside of, you know, when you finished up your Ithaca college career, when you ended up in baseball, New York, Penn league, South Atlantic league. And, and I believe you've told us that you really thought that you were going to end up as a really in a baseball career. I'm sure your father's influence had something to do with that. Can you take us back to when you were calling those games in in Jersey and the South
1: Atlantic League and, and all that fun times? I'm sure right out of school. Yeah, right out of school. I started in Batavia, New York with the Batavia muck dogs of the New York Penn League which is, uh, (laughs) it's an experience. We could probably do a whole podcast on my 72 game season in in the New York Penn league. But so I I was able to jump out of school, basically graduate in May and start in June, you know, short season started, you know, end of June right after the draft and kind of, it it was funny because that year was, it was 2006 and I was a senior in college and had just moved in, you know, to a broadcasting role. And a lot of the guys on the team were, Class of 2006 or 2007, just getting drafted out of their junior, senior year of college and and coming to play pro ball. So it was almost like I was part of the Phillies 2006 draft class because that was the Phillies organization. And then the next year, they all kind of graduated and went to Lakewood in the South Atlantic League. And I actually got that job and kind of continued along with them for a couple of years. So um, it it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. And, And yeah, I thought I would be a baseball broadcaster. That was always my intention as a kid and growing up. I had played hockey my whole life, but broadcasting baseball was kind of what I just always envisioned when I thought about my career. And then I, I did my, I remember this, I did my first baseball game. It was the end of my freshman year at Ithaca college and it was, you know, 40 degrees and freezing. And, you know, we're working from the third ba- top of the third base dugout, which if you've tried to call balls and strikes from a third base dugout is, is challenging. And I was awful. And it was hard. And I did not enjoy it at all. And it was just kind of my whole world came crashing down, right? I had spent 10 years trying to be a baseball broadcaster. And then I finally got to do it. I'm like, I don't like this. This this is awful. And it it just kind of, I called my dad after the game. And and he was like, hey, it was your first game. Like, relax. But I I think at that point, it was just like, you know what? I, I like broadcasting. Maybe I should try and do as much as I could, much as I can. And, and I did that and wound up doing both baseball and hockey pretty consistently throughout college and then doing baseball and hockey, you know, alternating seasons, my first three years out of school, which got me a lot of experience in a hurry. It's funny. We had Howie on the podcast, you know, a
2: couple of weeks back and he talked about the differences between calling a baseball game and calling a hockey game. He said, one of them, you are setting the pace and the other one, I think you're kind of maybe controlling the pace. I hope I'm remembering that correctly, but you know, you make that transition to hockey, you wind up with the Wheeling Nailers in the ECHL. So, you know, tell us about that transition going to Wheeling. I think it's one of the more, uh, it's part of the all-name team, that's for sure. So what was your time like in Wheeling?
1: Yeah, I went from the Muck Dogs to the Nailers. That's a pretty good transition between those two. But to go off what Howie said, i you know, I, I often describe it as in one, you struggle to fit information in. And in another, you struggle to have enough information to fill the time and the transition to hockey and baseball, especially, you know, how he was doing it radio to TV. I was doing it radio to radio. And it was just like that first weekend of doing baseball after spending a season doing hockey. It was, you know, the 2-1 pitch in the dirt, the catcher slides to his left blocks, it keeps it in front of him and tosses it back to the pitcher. And you're like, no, wait, wrong sport. You don't do that in baseball. It's just it's just a pitch. And it's a ball and you can move on. You don't have to describe every single detail because it's it's irrelevant. But, you, you know, it's those subtle differences where you're if you're in hockey mindset, that's how you would call a baseball game. And you get exhausted listening to that. But at the same time, I managed to work for, you know, uh, the minor league baseball route and the hockey route and go back and forth. And just um, I had no offseason. I remember my first year transitioning from baseball in, in Batavia to the first year in Wheeling. I got hired really late. And then the next year, at the end of the hockey season, I was going back to baseball. And and the last weekend of the regular season in Wheeling overlapped with opening weekend in baseball. And the Nailers played a game in Trenton, which is not too far from Lakewood, New Jersey. And I literally did both games in the same day. And took a bus back to Wheeling, packed up all my stuff. The team was going to West Virginia. I met them down in Charleston, West Virginia. I mean, it was just bananas, but um, you know, I, I tried to get as much accomplished as I could. And really, I, I mean, I, I got six years worth of experience in three years, which for a kid coming out of school at 22, 23 years old was, was invaluable for me and, and kind of getting a head start and to, you know, I was in the American Hockey League 24 years old. So I got a lot of experience in a, in a short period of time, and that certainly helped get me where I got as fast as I did. One of your big breaks was moving on
0: to the Peoria Rivermen in Peoria, Illinois, in the American Hockey League, like you said, at 24. Also going with that job, though, we understand you broadcast Arena Football 2 for the Peoria Pirates for a season. Do you have any crazy stories from your time in Peoria with either the Rivermen or the Pirates? And I'm sure there were some crazy bus trips there.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot of bus trips. The Peoria Pirates thing was just kind of, they were in the arena and they they were, I, I want to say they were defunct for a couple of years and they were reviving the franchise and they needed somebody and I had nothing else to do. At this point, you know, my now wife was my girlfriend back then and she was, you know, living in, in New Jersey and I was in Illinois. I'm like, I got all the time in the world, so let's broadcast some more stuff, right? And so I, I hooked on and did the Peoria Pirates games on on the times where they didn't overlap with the hockey And the one distinct memory I have was, we can look up what weekend it was, it was the weekend Michael Jackson died. Um, I just remember that being the news, which we didn't find out until we got off the bus because it wasn't like we all had Twitter on our phones back then. This was, you know, back in the dark ages of 2008 or nine or whatever that was. And we had a bus ride from Peoria, Illinois to Albany, New York in July. I think it was July or late June. It was hot. And the first thing that happened on that bus ride was the air conditioning broke. And this was a trip where just because of the timing of it, because the nature of the league, you tried to minimize as much time as you had on the road because you didn't want to spend any money on hotels. So the bus left at midnight from Peoria. And I think it was 18 hours with stops or whatever it was. It took forever. And there was no air conditioning. And you're on the bus with these 300 plus pound linemen that I'm not kidding. When we got off that bus, it looked like they were climbing out of a swimming pool. It was disgusting. And then you literally got got out, had a night in the hotel, one night in the hotel, played a game the next day, and then boom, got on the bus, went all the way back. And, and at no point did they fix the air conditioning. Um, luckily for me, um, being from the East Coast, my dad actually came to the game in Albany. And uh, I went home with him and spent a, a couple of days back in New Jersey with him. And then they hadn't been out to Peoria, so they took the long drive out, which was a much shorter, much more pleasant car ride than it would have been a bus ride back. But that's that's my one Peoria Pirates uh, AF two story. Now, don't confuse it with the AFL. This is low level arena football uh, at its finest. Yeah.
2: Well, Greg is a big arena football fan. Still, <laughs> still loves the Dragons. That's for sure. I'm curious. You know, off that in Peoria with the hockey team. One of the things like if, I think I can't remember if this is from your time in Utica or Peoria, but I believe you were also the PR guy for one of these AHL stops, All. potentially both. And I mean, I think people don't necessarily realize that, like, you know, you think about Allen and Bridgeport, like he's also their PR guy. And that means he's broadcasting game and he's writing game notes on the bus after like it's just a, a ton going on. So do you have any good stories about being the Peoria PR guy?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think too, you know, in Peoria, I spent five years there and I was not only the PR guy where you're talking about game notes, press releases, all that kind of stuff, but also community relations, media relations, all of that. And on top of that, I picked up the traveling secretary role basically because it started out the first year I was there is that, you know, some guy in the office would book hotels and then it would be a disaster and there would be nobody there to fix it. And I was like, you know what? I'm on this trip. Why don't I just take this over? And so I was in charge of booking. Hotels and flights and buses and meals and all of that stuff for all of these players and working with the coaching staff it was the St. Louis Blues organization and working with the management, in the front office, and, and going through all that. So I had all of that on top. But so so road trips were stressful for me because if if a bus didn't show up or a meal was wrong, one time they served breakfast instead of lunch and the guys had to eat eggs instead of their pasta and it was just a whole, I, you know, that falls on me, right? So I, I just it was always like God, just everything go right. So those were always stressful times, you know and. I often tell people, especially young broadcasters, when they ask about it, I literally worked a full-time job that had nothing to do with broadcasting. And I almost felt like I broadcasted on my own free time. It was like, I worked a nine to five. I did all of this work. And then because I did that, the reward at the end of the day was I get to go upstairs and do the radio. And that's kind of how you have to treat it. I did all of my game prep on my own time after hours, you know, out of the office at home to get ready for games because I had other jobs that had to be done. And so it, it is time consuming and it is hard. And if you're not willing to put the work in on your broadcasting stuff that you want to get done, you just won't get it done and you won't, you won't progress and it won't be very good. So, um, you know, that's the, that's the kicker of being, you know, the jack of all trades in the minor leagues is that the, the broadcasting stuff is usually the thing that your boss cares least about. And that's, uh, that's the unfortunate reality for broadcasters trying to come up through the minor leagues.
0: Made the transition from the Midwest in Illinois back to the Northeast with Utica Comets in the American Hockey League still. And have to figure prior to making it to the National Hockey League, the highlight of your minor league career has to be that 2015 run to the Calder Cup final. Unfortunately, the Comets couldn't win the Cup. They lost to the Manchester Monarchs. But what was that run like? And in Utica, I'm sure a lot of the town lives and breathes that hockey team.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Utica is a great hockey market and it it was, it just didn't have a team for a long time. So the reason I wound up in Utica is because Peoria no longer existed. Um, The team was sold by St. Louis. They were, it's strange. Now teams are just trying to gobble up their AHL markets and own them and run them And St. Louis was trying to save money and and decided to unload their team. And they've been paying for it ever since trying to find affiliates, but um, they sold it to Vancouver. Vancouver is looking for a home. They found one in Utica, New York, where they had a a rink that they were looking to rehab and a market that they thought would work. And it was incredible. I mean, it was the smallest building in the league. It sat about 3,500 fans, but it was sold out every single night, even when they were not great. We started the the first season with an 11-game losing streak, which was fun. But that 2015 season was amazing, and it, it was we played 99 games that year, and the, all the home games were sold out. They did a whiteout in the playoffs, and it was loud and it was crazy, and and the team just kind of kept winning. and Jacob Markstrom, who the Islanders got to see, and and on the, on the first game in UBS Arena was the goalie for the Utica Comets that year, and and he was the sole reason why that team went as far as it did. But it was it was a fun time. I mean, you you get to broadcast those games, and you know, I get I get to do playoff games now. I'm fortunate enough to do some playoff games on television now but it's, it's different when it's your team and it's different at that level. Because like I said, I was not just kind of hanging out in the press box. I mean, I was involved with these guys on a daily basis with the coaches, with the players going through, you know, whether they needed a, you know, a change on a flight or they were, you know, going home at the end of the season, all that, I had to work through all that stuff with them doing all that, you know? So I, I was, I was pretty close with those guys. So to watch that happen and to see that and have a whole lot of fun and and be part of that environment was, uh, was
2: special. It really was. So one thing that I like, the fact that Vancouver's affiliate was in Utica, which is across the continent. And, you know, back in, I think, the 2012 lockout or 2012-13, uh, I did a story for the Hockey News about what affiliates had the closest uh, commute from place to place. And I think the Marlies were far and away the closest one. I think, you know, Bridgeport to Long Island's really not that bad. But we found guys that literally, I think, had to go from, I can't remember where Anaheim's affiliate was at the time, maybe Norfolk. Well, maybe. Norfolk. Yeah. Oh, Norfolk. Yeah. Yeah. Norfolk, And they, we found a guy who I think got called up and sent down four days in a row and had to make the trip. I think he went from Norfolk to Anaheim. They sent him back to Norfolk. And then I think the next day he got called back up and the team was in Nashville. And we're just like, dude, what is that like? Like you are just, you know, cause you're not flying taking a charter right there. There's no direct flight from Norfolk to Anaheim. So, you know, I'm curious uh, when you were in Utica, did you have any guys who had to make those trips back and forth? Uh, you know, just, or what are your thoughts on that in general?
1: Yeah, I, I, I've got thoughts on, on that in general. For, first off, when we were in Peoria, our ECHL, fit was Alaska, the Alaska Aces. So the Illinois to Alaska commute was not a, not a, not a convenient one, but l- listen, uh, my thoughts in general on the AHL nhl relationship and the geography of it first of all the one thing you have to remember is that stuff only matters if both teams are home so you can have the most perfect relationship of toronto Marlies and toronto maple leaf's five miles apart or eight kilometers or whatever it is but if they're if one of them is in anaheim you're still making that trip if the if the maple leafs are playing a a three-game road trip and they're in la anaheim and san jose it doesn't matter that your affiliates right down the street so the the people reading that much into the relationship you know it, it the the relationship between vancouver and utica didn't make as little sense as it seems to from the outside it, it wasn't that big of a deal most of the time you're not calling a guy up that has to play that day so you have that time yes it creates those awkward situations where they you bring him up you might not need them you decide not to make the transaction he steps foot in in vancouver and goes right back on to utica or right back to wherever the comments were if they were you know in abbotsford it was actually kind of convenient um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it creates some interesting travel plans for some of those guys, and they get worn out. And but at the end of the day, if they're getting called up from the AHL to the NHL, even if it's for one day, they probably make like a couple weeks' salary for that one day that they would have made in in the AHL level on two way contracts. So they usually don't complain, even though they have to uh, go through that travel.
0: So In 2016, you get your big break. You get the call that you're going to replace. Howie Rose, after 21 years of him being the television play-by-play voice, you're taking over that role. And in particular, when you found that out, want to know if you had any words of advice from either Howie or Jigs or anybody else in particular as you stepped
1: behind the microphone. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was uh, August 4th, 2016 was when I got the phone call from my agent that said, Hey, they're, they're offering you the job. And I remember that I would have remembered that day probably anyway. It also happens to be on my wedding anniversary. So it's really easy to remember. So that was the the call that, that changed my life. And it was one that, you know, I had come, I don't want to say close to a couple other NHL jobs, but I'd been in the AHL for eight years. I'd been in the minor leagues for 10 years. I'd had a couple of you know, good feedback from teams that for different jobs it just didn't work out for whatever reason. And and this was one that I really had my heart set on. Obviously, being from you know, from northern New Jersey and growing up in this New York City market, this was this was one you want. And you know, right? Like you know, if, if these jobs open, you know, hopefully they don't open again for a really long time. So this was I knew it was my one shot. If I was gonna get the islanders' job, this was gonna be it because whoever was gonna fill this job is gonna stay here for a while. So that was a, an incredible day. And you know, I, I got the phone call from my agent. And I remember him saying that they're offering you the job and I don't remember really much. He talked about a lot of stuff and I was just on another planet, right? Like I just wasn't really even listening and I just hung up the phone and I was standing outside. So just a fun story from Utica. Uh, my three years in Utica, they were constantly uh, updating this old building that they were trying to, the, the Utica Memorial Auditorium, they're trying to rehab and turn into something you know, more modern. Uh, my offices were literally in a temporary trailer in the parking lot for the three years that I worked in Utica. So I'm, this is, this is in August. I'm, I'm standing outside the trailer on my my cell phone um, when I got that call. And, and I just, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to call. I didn't really know what to do. And I wanted to tell my wife, because obviously this was changing her life, not just mine. And, So she, she, she's a nurse and she's working at a doctor's office a few miles away. And I didn't, you know, I was at work and I'm just like, you know what? I just got in the car and drove to her office. I I didn't know what to do. And I I went and I drove there and I got out of the car and I just walked into her office and she knew I was waiting for that call. And I'm like, she's like, did you get it? And I, I couldn't even say anything. I just looked at her and she knew. And so that was a, a special moment. But in terms of, you know, hearing from everybody else, I heard from everybody. Um, after I got that job, it was, it was one of the really cool parts of getting that job was just my phone blowing up every few seconds for days. And I had heard from Chris King was one of the first guys that called me and, and Howie, I have a previous relationship with Howie through my father. So, so I had been in contact with him, but Howie called me right before I went on the air for the first time. First game that I did was a preseason game. We had a preseason broadcast that year, just one and Howie called me. In the middle of a production meeting and I'm I, I showed the producer I'm like uh, I'm like it showed it to how he like, you was know, I'm gonna take this one so I walked away from the meeting and I, I answered the phone and the one piece of advice he gave me which was which was perfect was he said this is your job don't act like you're filling in for me or anybody else this is yours and I mean I knew that but to hear it from him it just kind of gave me the thought of you know nobody cares that I'm new I like, yes. Am I different than Howie? Yes. Do people understand and and care that this is a different broadcaster? Yes. But at the end of the day, Islander fans tuning in to watch a game, they don't care about me. They care about the Islanders. That's why they're there. So my thought was, okay, I'm not going to act like I'm new. I'm going to act like I've been here 10 years. I'm going to talk about things that happened last year like I called those games because I wanted there to be as little of a disruption between Howie and myself as possible and for them to as quickly as possible, forget that I'm the new guy. Those words of advice from Howie just kind of said it, all right, this is this is the right way to attack this. And I remember, I think it was Christmas time, Butch actually said something to me on the air, said, remember last year when? And I'm like, oh, he's already even forgot I wasn't here last year. This is perfect. This is going really well. So, um, you know, I, I appreciate Howie giving me that advice because I think that was part of, you know, one of the reasons why I was accepted so quickly by Islander fans was that I didn't treat them like, I was anything different than Howie. It was just a different voice, but the same thing. And you can come enjoy your Islander games the same way you did last year.
2: Well, your first Islander win, I believe it was a Josh Bailey OT winner. And I'm sure that's a great moment uh, for a broadcaster for a first win. So what do you remember about that game and
1: that call? That was, uh, you know, the first couple of games they had lost, Right, They they lost to the Rangers, which if you go back and look, and and Greg probably has it off the top of his head, but if you go back and look, the Islanders won, I think, 14 of 15 games against the Rangers, and that was the one game they lost, was my first game at the Garden. And then they lost the next night in D.C. when, uh, I think that was Barzell's NHL debut, when he he took the penalty without stepping onto the ice by playing the puck from the penalty box. But anyway, but then the third game was that home opener against Anaheim at, at Barclays Center, and it was... You know, the first home game, so it's a, it's a big deal, and, and, you know, you feel like it's a big deal, and then to have it end on a Bailey overtime winner. Sets it up for Bailey. Lenny will make the changes. Bailey cruises to the front, dances, scores! What a goal for just Bailey for the first win of the Islanders season. And then I felt really good about it. Right? like it's your first big moment you know there, you can be a good broadcaster and you can be entertaining and you can you can have a good call but if you screw up those big moments it, that's the only thing people remember right the, you could have had a, a two and a half hour Emmy Award nominee broadcast and then you screw up the overtime winner and that's that's it right so but I felt really good about the way it ended and, and the call and it was the first time right like I'm walking home in Brooklyn lived in Brooklyn and walked down the street and going back to my apartment and uh, you know I had my phone out and I'm checking Twitter and you know, NHL.com or the NHL Twitter account is is tweeting a clip of my call of Bailey, and it's going out to however many thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of followers they have. And I'm like, oh boy, like this is the first time that a lot of people are going to hear me as the New Islanders broadcaster. Uh, and I felt really good about it. And I was still on my phone walking home, my 10 minute walk home, and I got an email and it was from Doc Emmerich, who's who's my hero, right? And it just said, sounded great keep up the good work you know we'll see around very short you know sweet email but it was like all right everybody saw this doc saw it and doc saw it thought it was good i feel good about it i think that was that was a good start so um that was the first kind of big moment that i had and um it's still a, still a special call of mine for all the ones that i've had since then well on the topic of special calls uh, i'm
2: sure you probably can't walk around long island without people saying game one to the island <laughs> uh, i guess a do you think that's kind of been your signature call since your time with the islanders and you know b just take us through that moment uh how you came up with it or if it was just kind of spontaneous uh, take us through game one of the island islanders
1: clear it ahead two on one barzell and
2: eberle matt
1: barzell in waits backhand he hit the post they score just barely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it became something, I don't know why. Right. Like you look back on it and go, it was the first game of the playoffs and you know, they won the series, but like, why, you know, like why is that the moment from that series? Like it's not, they won, they didn't win the series. They won one game. Um, But there's a lot of things to it. Like, um, you know, the, the, the reason why that game was so special was that was the season that everybody left them for dead. Right. That was the season that Tavares had left. That was the season where I think Deadspin ran the article of, you know, season preview first place to the Islanders was how they were ranking the teams, right? I mean, they were, they were literally supposed to come in last place in the entire NHL. And then it was the same season that they had gone back to the Coliseum. And so it was the same game where, you know, I opened the broadcast by saying this was never supposed to happen, you know, not this year and not in this building um, because they weren't supposed to be in that position and they weren't supposed to be in that building. And so they wound up at the Coliseum Packed house. And it just felt like, uh, you know, I I actually credit Barry Trotz with putting the island into my vernacular, right? Like Barry Trotz kind of came in and and referred to the island quite a bit. And he had that speech with the Capitals when they gave him a Stanley Cup ring that says, you know, you can do it again, but you're going to have to come through the island. And so it it wasn't anything I don't think I had used before, but it was something that I think that him using it over and over again to kind of put that in my head. And I think that, you know, that call for me was, like that game wasn't for the Islanders, right? Like it was for their fan base, the franchise, everything that had gone through that whole season, the transition back to the Coliseum, like that one felt like it was for more than just the team, the, the 18 skaters on the ice and the two goalies, like that one felt like it was more. And so that was kind of where my reference to the Island came from. And I think I actually thought of it. I'm just thinking about it now. I think I thought of it during The third period, like, I think I thought of just game one to the island would be a good way because it was getting late, right? So it was going to be a dramatic moment. And you figured, you know, the clock winds down and you can just say game one of the island. And I don't know if I wrote it down or not, but it was something that popped into my head during that game. That was not like, you know, a couple of days before it was like, oh, if they win the first game, this is what I'm going to say. But it popped into my head and I don't know why. And then obviously the moment kind of happened, right? And the call was the call was what it was. For me, Joel Mandelbaum, who's our director, you guys know him, you know, the director for people that don't know television is the person that decides what camera is being shown on television. And that's a, that can be a very artistic thing to do. And his shot of Robin Leonard by himself at the other end of the ice, which is a ridiculous shot to take. There is no reason to take that shot, right? Like, why are you taking a shot at the other end of the ice when everything is down there by Josh Bailey. You've got the crowd going nuts, but I love that shot of Leonard with his arms up and it just kind of comes together, you know, with the call. And so, yeah, I mean, that was just kind of from my perspective where that all came from. And then I, like I said, I don't know why that's the one that has the sticking power, but you're right. That's, that's the one people remember.
0: Glad you brought that up. Cause that just shows how in touch Joel and your whole production crew was with that season and how much, that moment meant to, to everybody and and looking at the other end of the ice. And then it reminds me of Semyon Varlamov in the 2020 bubble playoffs. And I know that was deep in the playoffs. So you didn't get the chance to call that, but his dive, it's funny how these big overtime moments, the the goalie who's on the other end of the ice (laughs) is still heavily involved in that. It's really something, how it works out, but we can't have a conversation with you without getting into your broadcast partner. Butch Gorin. he is one of the more interesting personalities that I think we know. And, and you typically don't spend this many years going from being a, a player to a broadcaster without being an interesting personality. And so just, can you share a little nugget to the fans about working with Butch and traveling with Butch and all these different sorts of Butchisms that people might know on air, but you know what? It's a way of life too, with Butch, Butchisms.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and you guys know this, the, Butch on the air is Butch off the air, right? Like it's not an act. It's not a show. He doesn't do this because he's on television. Like he's the same person 24 hours a day. And I've spent many of those hours with him. And one of the reasons why I think that he and I work so well together on the air is because we spend a lot of time together off the air. We enjoy each other's company. We have fun. And and some of that I think comes across on our shows. But, you know, he is uh, he's amazing, right? You talk about what has he done in the game of hockey or what hasn't he done in the game of hockey, right? He was a player. He's a guy that worked his way up through, you know, Winnipeg minor hockey had to play in the American league, had to really work to get to the NHL was shuttled back and forth between Springfield and the LA Kings had a long career that he thought was going to be for the entire career in LA gets uprooted his whole life, pissed about it gets traded to long Island, right? It's got to come from LA where You know, he owned he owned racehorses to come to Long Island, winds up being the perfect fit and winning four Stanley Cups and changing his whole life forever. And he wound up coaching in the minor leagues and coaching the Islanders and being a general manager in the minor leagues and coaching in Europe. I mean, and then he becomes a broadcaster and he's just been just had the hockey life and all of those experiences that very few people have one of those lives in hockey. And he's had all of those lives in hockey. So he comes at this game from such a unique perspective, uh, you know, he is a unique personality where if he sees something, he says it. And whether it's the perfect thing to say, whether it's the perfect time to say it uh, he goes for it. And, and I think that works. And it was, I would be lying if I said it wasn't an adjustment period when I first got um, this job I, as somebody who spent 10 years in the minor leagues on radio alone to have somebody like Butch who loves to jump in all the time, it was very jarring at first that, you know, I thought I was just going to call the game the whole time. And it's like, Oh, okay. He wants, he wants to talk here. All right. Let him go ahead. Butch like, uh, and, and so it was, it was an adjustment, but it was, it was a lot of fun kind of getting to feel how that process. And I think, after five years, I think we've kind of figured it out, or at least I figured it out how to work with Butch. I don't think he has to change much. Um, so it's, it's, uh, we just let him go and it's awesome to, to hear what he has to say. And he's always, he's always got something interesting to say. That's for sure. I think we can laugh about it in
0: retrospect, but when you talk about him jumping in, I know there's a highlight of a goal, an empty net goal in Buffalo a couple of years ago, and it was scored from the other end of the ice. And right away he goes, Was that the goaltender? And you right away, Ryan Polak, and you basically, <laughs> you know, you can jump, you know when you can jump on Butch as well and
1: and, and shut that down. Um, you know what? You know what's funny is is uh, is you know like I said, I let Butch do his thing, and you know a lot of times he jumps in as soon as the goal scored. I can barely finish saying scores, and he's in. And and a lot of it's times, excitement. Analysts, yeah. It's excitement from him, right? A lot of times, analysts will wait. They'll watch a replay that's not shown on television, so that they understand what happened. And then when the replay plays, they've already kind of got an idea. They've watched it a couple of times, and you know they've got an idea what they're going to say. Butch analyzes the play well before anybody sees the replay right? Like he just jumps in. He already knows, which is incredible. I, I barely remember who passed the puck and I said it and he, he can analyze it, but uh, I will say this, talking about our game one of the Island that remains the only time I have ever physically put my hand up to Butch to just be like, just wait for one second here because it just that moment, right? Like that moment needed it. And, and Joel was doing his thing, right? We're showing the ramen Leonard shot. We're doing all this stuff. And I put my hand up just, And I don't think he even knew what I was doing, but I think the confusion of why are you waving at me was enough to get a little break before he jumped in. I'm picturing in his mind, like him trying to high five you like that's (laughs) what he thought was going on there. It it was definitely more confusion than anything else, but at least (laughs) the confusion bought me a few extra seconds before he jumped in where I was just like this this one needs needs a little bit of room here. So let's, let's let it go. And it was great. And it was great.
0: We also have to ask about another one of your partners who is not on the microphone, and that's someone that Islanders fans have really gotten to know thanks to Twitter, and that's Eric Hornick, the Islanders team statistician, MSG network statistician, who's been involved in broadcast for the team for over 40 years now. How vital is it having a guy like that that knows not only just everything about the team, but that you can work hand in hand with? And I know you've been with him now on more than just MSG broadcasts as well.
1: Yeah, so we've been together now for you know five plus years, and you know for me, he's he's my memory of events that never happened for me, right? Like I don't remember things that happened, and and he does, and he will hand me notes. I, I don't even really like to call him a statistician anymore. I I call him my broadcast consultant. I think Joe Buck says the same thing about his longtime statistician. He, it's more of a broadcast consultant, right? Like he's he's an editorializer for me, you know, for everything, and he will fill me in on things that aren't stats and things that tie things together and, and, and just Islanders, you know, history that I will never get from anywhere else. And he understands better than any other guy that I've worked with, how the brain of a broadcaster is working, right? Because anybody, it can throw numbers up, but most of the time I look at him and go, okay, I'm not using that. Um, but with him, he knows the way I'm thinking and he understands what the moment calls for. Um, and so he'll give me that. And to that point, like you said, you know, I do lacrosse for NBC during the summer to the Premier Lacrosse League. I have Eric as my stats guy. He did not know lacrosse. I mean, he does now because he's been with me a couple of years. But, but I know he knows how the broadcast works and how my mind works and what stat I might need or what information I might need at that point. So, yeah, I brought him around on my lacrosse. Uh, I'm fortunate enough uh, to work for for TNT now as well. And they give me the freedom to have my own stats guy. And so I have Eric flying around with me doing some national games this year, get him out of the road a little bit. So uh, he he is an invaluable piece of my broadcasts and even something like this weekend, right? So this weekend was the first ever game at UBS Arena. I spent half hour, 45 minutes with him on the phone, just picking his brain about the last 30 years of arena drama, right? Because I wasn't here. And it's impossible to really understand what happened if you weren't here and you weren't following it on a daily basis. And so just talking to him and and hearing his thoughts, I mean, that stuff all played into, you know, the way I handled this weekend's games because of my conversation with him. He was the, he's the only guy that I really talked to, talked to some fans and I put out some tweets and whatnot, but he's the only person that I knew I needed to talk to before I went on the air this weekend. And as you've said, Eric is an
2: invaluable part of the broadcast and really all you guys do a great job. I think about, Shannon, AJ, Joel, everybody in the truck. So we want to talk about the first weekend at UBS Arena. Obviously, it was such a huge moment for the franchise. It was such a moving night being there. I know Greg and I covered it on the radio, and we've been around here for 10 years. We know what this has meant for this organization, this fan base. You know, what was the first weekend like at UBS Arena for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, right? So, you know, the building itself is just perfect. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, we've been to all of the arenas in the NHL, right? And the new ones are always great. I mean, I think that goes without saying. The, these brand new buildings, when they're built, when they open, are always the best in the league, and they, that's how they should be. And for right now, this is the best NHL building I've ever been in. You know, there are some other nice ones around the NHL, but this one just seems to fit. If it's the Islanders, and and, and I'm amazed... They got it done. I know you guys were in there just like I was about a week beforehand, and even days beforehand of it actually opening. And it was like, man, I don't know if this is going to get done in time, but kudos to everybody who was involved in getting it done because they got it done and it was spectacular. And I think that, yeah, they lost a couple of games. You know, they were missing a lot of guys because of COVID and it was a shame that guys like Anders Lee and Josh Bailey, you know, the captain and the guy who'd been there the longest on the team couldn't participate because that just, that's not fair. You know, that's just that, that they, they deserve that moment. And they'll get their moment in their first game there, but they should have been there in the building. And it's unfortunate that they couldn't be there. But I think that for the first time, at least for me, like the games didn't matter, right? Like th- this weekend wasn't about the wins and losses. This game was about the beginning of the the stability of Long Island and the Islanders franchise of having their new home and answering all the questions that have been asked for the last decade plus. Um, so it was just kind of, it- it's kind of a surreal feeling that, that they finally have their their quote unquote forever home and that it's open and that it's a real thing and that every game from here on out is gonna be there, right? It's been such a in my five years. Think about it. When I when I signed on here to be the Islander broadcaster, this was a team that was in their second year of what an ironclad 25-year lease. Was that the term that was used, right? Like ironclad, right? That was a, what I always heard is that, oh, okay, I'll move to Brooklyn. They're gonna be there forever. This is this is the new Islanders, right? And so five years later, I've moved to Long Island. I live in Huntington. The team split games. Then they came here full time. And just all the things that have happened in the last five years that I've been here. And now knowing that I don't have to check the schedule to see which home building we're going to be playing in tomorrow night. It's just kind of a, a cool feeling that it's, it's finally permanent and that it is spectacular.
2: So when we talked about the game one to the Island call, you said you'd come up with that in the third period. And obviously with Greg and I being in the press box, we don't actually get to listen to the MSG broadcast in real time, uh, at least for home games. But I saw the note you put on Twitter and you was kind of your whole uh, soliloquy about what it meant for the Islanders and the fans to have UBS arena. I also think back to the soliloquy from that return to the Coliseum in December of 2018, And I'm just curious, you know, kind of take me through the process of when you write those, because that's kind of the bridge between what Greg and I do. Like, I'm a writer, he's a broadcaster, but it seems like in those moments, you really take the time to get it all down on paper. And just, you know, what is that process like for you when you're coming up with those uh, extended intros?
1: Yeah, there's only been a few times that I've asked our producer for kind of the freedom to say what I feel needs to be said before puck drop. But like on a normal game, we would have done the Audi goaltending matchup in that, you know, 45 seconds that we had. Right. But for games like that, I'm, I just feel like that's not the right tone to set. Like this is bigger. And, and especially for that game on, on, you know, the first ever game of UBS, like that moment means way more than Jacob Marks or me and Simeon Varlamov. Right. So I did it for, the first game back at the Coliseum, December 2018, like you said. 1255 Hempstead Turnpike, Nassau Coliseum, Fort Neverloos, the old barn, it's been called many things over the last 46 years, but one thing every Islander fan calls it is home. Home's a simple concept, but it's become overly complicated for the New York Islanders over the past four seasons. This place may look slightly different, but it is as it should be. And once again, it is full of fans and full of memories. The Columbus Blue Jackets were here on April 11, 2015, when the last regular season game was played, and they're back here tonight to take on the New York Islanders. I did it for the first game of the playoff series, the same game one of the island, the beginning of that game, I asked for that minute, and, and I think this one, I think those are the three times that I've asked for just to kind of a little bit of latitude to, to kind of say what I want to say, and they've, you know, two different producers, Jim Gallagher first, Stephen Napolitani now, both gave me that that freedom to do that. And I'm thankful for that in terms of putting it together, you know, like I just, I want to set the tone for what this game means, what this moment means. And you know, those are, those are important moments, right? That there's only one, that building's only opening once. There's only one puck drop that, that means what it meant. So I I wanted to get that down. Right. The, the key is here. And as you saw on Twitter, you don't know how much time you're going to have. I'm trying to, in my head, as I'm writing this, I know it's between the hall of famers getting off the ice them cleaning up the carpets, guys taking a couple of twirls, puck drop. I don't know how long this is going to take. I thought I was going to have a little more time. Um, I thought I'd have more than a minute. I think it was closer to 30 seconds. So a couple things. When, I, when I'm when i writing it, I actually spent probably the past four or five days leading up to the first game writing down thoughts, lines, just things that I thought needed to be included, not really any sort of you know sentence structure or anything along those lines, just this needs to get included. This word, this phrase – whether it came to me in the shower or whatever, I, I just had a, a word document where I would just put a bunch of lines in and try and work it through. Like I said, I talked to Eric Cornick for a long time, just about the history of the, the arena struggles. I sent out a tweet, which was proved to be really valuable. I sent out a tweet. that's just what does the opening of UBS arena mean to you as an Islander fan? And I got hundreds of responses. And I read every single one of them and I was reading them. I have two screens and I was reading them on one screen while I was writing on another and just kind of picking out words that people would send or feelings or sentiments that I'm like, all right, that has to be in there. That has to be in there. And you know, I kind of wrote them. If you, if you see the picture of the actual writing, I wrote them in blocks. Some of that is for just visual of trying not to get lost in your words while you're reading something like that in that moment. But some of it was just, this is a block that I want to get in. This is a block. and they actually changed orders as I was writing it about the way that it flowed best. But also I wrote it in blocks because I didn't know how much time I was going to have. And I wrote blocks that I thought, all right, if I, if I'm running out of time, I need to cut these blocks and it will still make sense. It'll still flow. It'll still get a, the point across of what I'm trying to do. And that's what I wound up having to do. I want up have to cut out the blocks that I had written about basically about the Coliseum itself but I wanted to time it out for puck drop. And that's that's the hard thing, right? I'm reading it and looking up and reading it and looking up and trying to time it out so that I hit puck drop. I wanted to hit it maybe a couple seconds before it actually. You know, like I, I, I kind of hit puck drop, right? <laughs> it was like I, I didn't have a whole lot of time between me finishing my last sentence and that puck hitting the ice. I was trying to hit it a little bit earlier um, just to let it breathe a little bit before the game actually started. And I would have been okay with them sitting on just the, the face-off with no words for a while. But, you know, I was trying to time that out, right? And, and it timed out right. I, I wish I could have gotten the whole thing in because I thought there was some important stuff that, that needed to be said. But that was, you know, that was my best take at trying to put the feelings of Islander fans that had been through this whole struggle, right? I, I almost feel like a faker, right? Like, I got to say the words, but those weren't my emotions. Those were their emotions. And I think the same thing is, is true with that return to the Coliseum, right? 2018. You know, that's one where fans would come to me and say, hey, I love that opening. You did a perfect job, you know, in capturing my feelings for what what I was going through with that return to the Coliseum. That was my first ever game there. Right. Like that wasn't me. That, That was all the conversations I had with fans. So, you know, I'm proud of those. I'm proud of those because I was able to represent what they had to say without actually being able to say it myself. And you know, especially that one of the return to the Coliseum, I heard a lot of fans that said, you know, you you really captured what I was feeling. And like I said, I the only, my only time in the Coliseum, i had been to one preseason game and a bare naked ladies concert in 1999. The, those are my two times that I had been at the Nassau Coliseum before that that game in December of 2018 when when they returned back. So you know, those those are special moments. But it that was not it was not easy. It was not just me sitting down and just putting a few words on paper. There was. I spend more time on those 30 seconds than I probably did on the rest of the broadcast in terms of preparation for what I was going through for that night. And I, I spent a lot of, to Greg, as you know, I spent a lot of time prepping for games, but I, I spent a lot of time staring at a blank word document to get those words on the paper.
0: Yes. I have sat next to you on some flights <laughs> to connect through Detroit, where I see you updating your notes uh, right after each game. And wanted to actually ask you about the the prep because every broadcaster has their own style and I know you've tweeted out sometimes your folders that you lay out in front of you for each game. Is that something you came up with on your own completely? Did you take that from somebody else and put your own twist on it? Where did you really learn that
1: prep style? Yeah, I'm kind of a nerd for game prep. Like, I, I love to see everybody's system. And you know, the one thing about game prep for a broadcaster is that there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's, it's just what you're comfortable with. And so I love I, I I go into all the booths, right? I'm I'm still I'm still a guy that goes in and goes, "Can I see can I see your notes? I just want to see what what you do and what works for you and kind of pick good things and and things that oh, maybe that maybe that'll work for me." Um, you know, it started in college on on a Manila folder was just kind of I don't even know whose idea that was originally, but it just kind of became the standard of a Manila folder of just to rear to arrange, you know, team on one side, team on the other side of it. And I and I it started handwritten because I didn't do that many games. I used to do hockey games? I did Cornell women's hockey games? In and when I was at Ithaca College, not men's. They wouldn't let us do the men's, and I was on the men's club hockey team for Ithaca, so I couldn't. We didn't broadcast their games anyway. But you know, I I, I started out with a ruler and a pencil and kind of drew my little boxes and and put everybody in. And then when I got to Wheeling, it was like, all right, I got to do a lot of these games, and I don't really have the time to bring out the ruler and the pencils anymore. So let's see if I can design something. And I want to say I had gotten. A template from somebody that they had used, and then I just kind of. At this point, it's completely different from what I had back then. Um, completely different, but it's built on Microsoft Publisher, which is annoying because it's a program that that is not readily accessible, and there is no Mac version for it. Not that I have Macs anymore, but it, it's it, it's 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 something that that has evolved throughout the years. Where I I still make changes. I say on a yearly basis, I make major changes during the off season, but I make changes every few games I mean I I I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff like I and I mean it like I go through and I research the 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 actual team colors so that it is printed out with the same like rbg rgb numbers of the the color codes like and it makes no difference at all right like it makes no difference to how good of a broadcaster I am but it makes me feel better like it does, uh, it's a work of art and, and I'm proud of it when it's done and I print it out and, and, and I've gotten so bad, right? Like I put so much time into these things and you guys know, I, I carry a printer with me on the road and I, I mean, I've printed my notes out during the, during the national anthem before. Like I just work on them until the bitter end and it's like, I don't need to be doing that but I just feel like there are some people that prep and they get to a point point, they're like, okay, I'm ready to go and they take a nap. And like for me, I prep until I run out of time and I hate it but that's, that's how I, that's how I operate. So, um, I have terrible handwriting, so I can't really write down notes. I have to put them all on my board. I have to print them. So that's just kind of the way that it's, that's worked. And, and so I've got, I've got all these, these, I've got folders all over my office here.
0: Well, it's certainly helped you get to this point and, and we know even bigger and better things in the future as, uh, you know, you've uh, really established yourself with this TNT role. But uh, Brendan, we, we really appreciate all this time. It's been fantastic learning some of the intricacies from your end. And obviously, we,
1: uh, we can't wait to see you even more at UBS going forward. No, thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys. Always, uh, always good to talk broadcasting for those that are interested in those, those things. Uh, not everybody is, but I appreciate you guys being, being part of it. So thank you. 1255 Hempstead Turnpike in Uniondale is now 2400 Hempstead Turnpike in Elmont, UBS Arena at Belmont Park. Welcome home Islander fans and you can write home in ink this time. The headline here is an NHL team opens new arena. It's so much more than that to so many people. For so many fans and for so many years, this is a moment that they never believed would happen year after year after year, that idea was only reinforced. It's a 30 year saga that is hard to explain, harder to believe and impossible to truly understand, except by Islander fans who live through it. This is a celebration, a celebration of a new era of Islanders hockey, a new feeling of stability, a shift in perception and perspective, a new beginning. But in this case, the end is just as important as the beginning. The closure as important as the opening. It's the end of the uncertainty, the instability. It's the end of the relocation threats and jokes. It's the end of the worry, that thought in the back of your mind that just wouldn't go away. From the Lighthouse Project to Barclays Center, there is an entire generation of Islander fans that don't know a time when the Islanders' home wasn't in question. Exhale, it's over. It's all over. This is the home the franchise deserves. A world-class, state-of-the-art hockey palace with the Nassau County zip code. We are eight miles west of Nassau Coliseum. The banners are in the rafters, hung at nearly an identical height as they were in the building where they were won. But that's about where the similarities end with the Coliseum. And that's not a bad thing. Because the Coliseum was never about the building. It wasn't about the ceiling height. It was about the people that filled it and the feeling inside of it. Both of those are present at UBS Arena. So enjoy the game. Enjoy whatever this moment means to you. But know that for the first time in forever, the only thing Islander fans have to worry about is a hockey game. Well,
0: thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talkin' Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at RightSway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at ny Islanders And stay up to date on UBS Arena at UBSArena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talkin' Isles.